Welcome to Why Are We So Restless, a podcast brought to you by Holy Trinity Anglican Church and the Center for Public Christianity. I'm Josh Shatra, the Executive Director of the Center for Public Christianity and theologian in residence at Holy Trinity Anglican Church. I'm also one of your co-hosts for this podcast. In a series of six talks, John Yates, the Rector of Holy Trinity Anglican Church, is going to address why we seem to be unsettled, discontent, and so easily distracted. He's going to consider what's going on culturally and how it is forming us before inviting us to consider different ways to learn to attend to the world. At the conclusion of John's talk, I'll rejoin you along with my co-host and New City Fellow alumnus, Micah Vandergriff. Micah and I will be joined by a special guest to briefly reflect on what we have heard and discussed how it applies to daily life. So stay with us for the second half of the podcast. In today's episode, John helps us navigate the shift from being idle consumers of information to being sources of godly wisdom. We're restless because we're obsessed with information in a world that's desperate for wisdom. So I'll take you back to the Garden of Eden again to the moment when the serpent slithered up to Eve and beckoned her into rebellion. So last night we talked about how the serpent invited Eve to question the limits that God had given her. And this morning I want you to notice the way in which he did this by appealing to her hunger for knowledge. God had warned Adam and Eve that one particular fruit would lead to death and only one. Everything else in the garden was theirs. But the hunger for knowledge, the desire to understand what only God can understand, led Eve to eat and thus to her death. Knowledge is power. That's a popular saying. But we also have to remember that knowledge leads to death in this particular context. We don't know exactly what the knowledge of good and evil is. It's not explained for us. And neither did Eve Certainly not before she ate the fruit. And that's fascinating. It wasn't knowledge of some specific thing that tempted her. It was, it was knowledge itself. She wanted to know what God knew. Not only was she attempting to shed her creaturely limits, by, by eating the fruit, she was attempting to ascend to the place of God. I think this is part of what's happening in the construction of the Tower of Babel. We're not going to go there, but I think that's a part of what's happening. So we're curious creatures by nature, and and this has driven so much of our development as a species. God planted this curiosity within us so we can explore and steward the world he's given us. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing. But there is a dark side, I think, to our thirst for knowledge. And And it's this lust for omniscience that seeks to set us as equals with God. So as the serpent lies to Eve, the serpent says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. So we live in an an information age. Not only are we generating more information than ever before, we have unprecedented access to information of all kinds. So from blogs about Korean pop music, to Reddit threads about vintage Corvettes, to an entire television network devoted to shows about cooking. And all of this information, 
all of that information, it fits into the palms of our hands. So our phones, our phones have become portals to a world of infinite knowledge. They're like gleaming Delphic oracles that live in our pockets or our purses. And this brave new world of endless information, it is very busy reshaping humanity. So I want to talk about the formative power of this reality uh, under three headings. And we'll start with the seductive power of knowledge before turning to the impact of information overload. And then finally, we're going to talk about the emotional dangers of worry porn. The emotional dangers of worry porn. You're just going to have to wait a few minutes to find out what the heck I mean by that. Uh, we're going to start with the seductive power of knowledge. So during the, act, during the pandemic, two of the phrases that were repeated over and over and over again, principally by government officials, were the phrases science and data and then research shows. And these phrases became a kind of verbal talisman used to reassure the public that all would be well just so long as we bowed at the altar of the scientific method. So in that, I'm going to critique, uh, I'm, as you can anticipate, I'm going to be critical of this, but I, I want you to hear this first. The modern science is incredible. Many of us, probably most of us in this room, we would not be alive today without the benefits of modern science. I'm grateful for the vaccines and the treatments developed by the unstinting labor of hardworking scientists during the pandemic. But I think we need to say that scientific research isn't infallible. Raw data is phenomenally tricky to process and contextualize. Research is absolutely necessary, and it's foundationally useful, but results have to be interpreted with care before being applied with caution. One of the things that confused and fascinated me during COVID was the way in which all of our debates revolved around science, data, and research. Now, of course, on one level, this made perfectly good sense. We were learning as much as we could, as fast as we could, about a virus that no one had ever seen before, except possibly a few folks in a lab. We needed as much information as we could gather. And that data, when it became available, it was immediately filtered through various layers of government, which then made decisions about lockdowns, masks, social distancing, occupational guidelines for buildings, etc. And that was all important, and it was all necessary. But Few people seem to realize or to take into account the fact that even with terabytes of data emerging about the virus, we still knew very little. Our decision-making decision was therefore always going to have to be based on wisdom and on good judgment. And that kind of decision-making requires incredible humility it requires a willingness to admit mistakes, and it requires a, a readiness to change course quickly. It also depends on robust, open conversation that intentionally includes a multitude of perspectives. But here's what was interesting to me is that when people disagreed about policy decisions, they tended to argue over data, not discernment. 
So one of the underlying assumptions behind the way the debate took place was that data and research could be simplistically translated into sound public policy. So this study says this about airborne transmission in an enclosed space, therefore we must do this. But that phrase, therefore we must, is filled with judgment decisions. And those are always moral judgments made by fallible people. Marilyn Robinson is a brilliant novelist and essayist. And I sometimes disagree strongly with her, but man, I enjoy her writing. And in her essays, she returns time and again to critique the naive faith that we place in scientific data, absent careful interpretation and humility. So she refers to the limits of scientific knowledge by speaking of the practice of scientists taking as the whole of reality that part of it that their methods can report. She questions claims to objectivity and so-called freedom from bias. She says scientific reductionism, good in its place, is very often used to evade the great fact of complexity. And she concludes that as a result, there is at present an alienation from religion, even among the religious, that is a consequence of this privileging of information over experience or of logic over history. What happened to folks on both the left and the right was that instead of seeking wisdom to shape decisions in the face of complex situations, we all sought out data to justify decisions we had already made. So folks on the left and folks on the right settled into basic policy patterns and then sought to justify them by amassing data that was helpful to their cause instead of trying to understand it in all of its complexity. As soon as one study became available, another study emerged that appeared to contradict it and was used as counter evidence. I'm not saying everyone did this. But I'm saying this was a pattern for many, both in positions of influence and for those of us who have no influence but wanted to become experts. What's concerning about all of this is that we thought that data and research could show us what to do. The fundamental assumption behind this faith in science, data, and research is that knowledge itself is sufficient. So we thought that we could make moral decisions based on statistical information. But those decisions always require wisdom. And wisdom depends on a proper view of what it means to be human, to live in a fallen world, a world that is nonetheless uh, formed and governed by God himself. The problem, and hear me on this, the problem is not with science or with the scientific method. The problem is with us and what we think we can expect from it. But we don't like being limited. We don't like being constrained. We want to retain our autonomy, and we want to make decisions for ourselves. We want to be like God. And that's why knowledge, access to information, is so seductive. It leads us to believe that we know all we need to, to know. That's why we say that knowledge is power. 
So this seductive power of information, it leads us to consume information endlessly to the point that we're filled past full, but with little wisdom to show for our endeavors. We suffer from bloating, from information overload. And that's the second category I want to consider, information overload. So in 2008, there were roughly 50 million websites. Now there are over a billion. There are 40 million different titles currently available on Google Books, which <clears throat> is in the process of trying to digitize every book that's ever been published. Over 300 million people are regularly on Twitter. Netflix has 1,800 television series and 3,600 movies available to, for you to watch right now. You can just turn it on right now and ignore me. That is a lot of information. It's a lot of information, and we have access to all of it at this very moment. Now, is it any wonder that we feel overwhelmed and overloaded? So th this sheer fact of information overload, it's not hard to show. We all know that we have access to more information and entertainment than we can possibly account for. But the impact of this information overload, it's harder to explain, and it's more subtle. We feel it. But we don't always have a name for what we're experiencing when we do. And I want to try to break this down, uh, break down what overload does to us in, in three categories, fragmentation, distraction, and then finally apprehension. Fragmentation, distraction, and apprehension. So the first thing that, that information overload does to us is it fragments our attention. It scatters our attention. Jeffrey Bilbro He's written a thoughtful book on how we consume and understand the news. And it's called Reading the Times, a Literary and Theological Inquiry into the News. He writes that the increased abundance and speed of the news threaten to fragment our attention and damage our ability to see what's really happening and to think rightly about these events. So think about this. How often have you found yourself reading an article online that leads you to another article that points to a survey which refers you to the website of a research center that then dumps you out on a lengthy expose about the founder of that research center's recent sexual infidelities. <laughs> so at, at the end of that sequence of websites and articles, you've learned a lot. But all of that information cannot tell you a coherent story, and it doesn't necessarily lead you to thoughtful reflection. The seamless interconnectivity of information available to us in combination with the speed at which we can access it leads to this fragmentation of knowledge which we struggle to pull together into a coherent whole. And that fragmentation leads us to constant distraction. So on any given day, the average adult receives between 65 and 80 notifications on their phones. These are the dings and pings you hear throughout the day. News alerts, weather warnings, incoming emails, text messages. And for many of us, our phones are pinging and dinging all day long. Uh, in her book, Distracted, Maggie Jackson argues that this state of perpetual distraction is eroding our capacity for deep, sustained, perceptive attention the building block of intimacy, wisdom, and cultural progress. So Alexis de Tocqueville, he saw this tendency among us nearly 200 years ago. Uh, he says of the average American, 
Tocqueville's amazing. He, he says, among all the goods that surround him, he sees none that's entirely out of his reach. He therefore does all things in haste, contents himself with approximations and never stops, but for a moment to consider each of his acts. His curiosity is insatiable and satisfied at little cost, for he insists on knowing very quickly rather than on knowing well. So our distractibility, it leads us to consuming media and information that's essentially useless. Jeffrey Bilbro says that this leads to what he calls mental dyspepsia. And that's a phrase that he borrows from Henry David Thoreau. With so much to consume, Bilbro explains, we end up turning to the mental equivalent of junk food. So cat videos, celebrity gossip, political scandals, BuzzFeed quizzes. Bilbro writes, it's easier to get an emotional hit from shallow, sensational news than it is to spend the mental energy required to engage more serious matters. Watching the world blow up is more exciting than studying its treasured wealth. So fragmentation and distraction, they wear us down, and over time, they make us vulnerable to being apprehended by the latest, loudest voices. And that's the third aspect of information overload that we experience. So in his book, Bilbro argues that our minds have become passive thoroughfares. And what he means by this is that when we, when we passively consume huge amounts of thoughtless junk food news and excessive information, we become passive. We become vulnerable to manipulation and deception by advertisers and by ideologues. We get run over by other people's priorities without realizing it. So you all know that the internet is a cacophony of disparate voices all vying for your attention. In a world that's overfull of information, we end up being drawn to the loudest shouting and the brightest lights. And typically those voices, they already resonate with us in some way. They worry about the same things we worry about. They care about the same issues. They sound like us. They might look like us. And so we click through to read, to watch, and to learn. And every time we do this, our search engines and our web browsers are watching. They're taking note, they're keeping track, and they're feeding us more and more of the same. And we end up diving down rabbit holes constructed by algorithms that take our biases and heap on more of the same. So you watch one video on YouTube and they queue up five more for you based on what you've watched in the past so they can convince you to keep watching. So with each click of a button, the internet gets a better idea of what you want to read and it sends you more of the same. What keeps the internet running is advertising. We will only see advertising if we stay online. We will only stay on if we're convinced that something is worth watching or reading. And most of what each of us is interested in is predictable based on past behavior. So links are generated and suggestions are made as to what we might want to read next. And before you know it, you have been apprehended by someone else's agenda and pulled along for the ride. Uh, the ne Netflix produced a docudrama called The Social Dilemma, which came out during the pandemic. And it unpacks this, this dark and manipulative process in a really powerful, if not sometimes melodramatic way. And it's well worth watching. So that's the effect of information overload. It leads to fragmentation, distraction, and sometimes apprehension as we get swept out in someone else's a, a, a agenda. Um, 
So we've talked about the seductive power of knowledge, the impact of information overload, and I want to turn now to the emotional dangers of worry porn. Um, I first came across this phrase in the Wall Street Journal earlier this year, and it was in an op-ed piece by Holman Jenkins. And he described worry porn as a genre of journalism that inflames our passions by breathlessly warning us of some impending disaster. The cynical motivation behind this approach to reporting is the bottom line need to generate clicks, as in how many people clicked on the article, because more clicks generates more advertising, which increases profit. So we think that we're informing ourselves when we are actually building up someone else's bottom line. This style of writing it's just as prevalent on the left as it is on the right. And it's becoming increasingly common. So think of the left-leaning reporting that predicted the imminent dissolution of the American Republic when Donald Trump was elected. And then the right-leaning reporting that predicted the exact same when Biden was elected. More and more of what we read as news is, I think, better described as worry porn. And that should make us worried. <laughs> Here's why. Worry porn constantly raises our level of anxiety, our baseline level of anxiety. And when we're anxious, we tend not to think clearly. We make snap judgments. We write mean emails. We say stupid things. Worry porn feeds us a constant diet of shocking images and disturbing information. But we only have so much emotional energy to expend each day. The more we worry about a breaking scandal in Washington or a shooting in Texas, or a coup in North Africa, the less emotional energy we have to attend to minor crises closer to home. So worry porn, it leads to the dissipation of our affections. Leads to the dissipation of our affections. It also leaves us unhealthily attached to the present in a way that's the opposite of practicing the art of being present that we talked about in the last talk. And that's because instead of carefully attending to the world around us, it leads us only to worry about what might happen in the very next moment. The present gets filled with a sense of tension and anxiety. So breaking news. Breaking news, that phrase, it scrolls across the bottom of our television screens or it pops up in a blinking window on our favorite news website. So, do you remember when, the new, when that phrase, breaking news, was actually reserved for something of importance? It's why when you see it, if you're a certain age, when you see it, you're like, what happened? But if you're, if you're like 35 or under, that phrase, breaking news, is completely meaningless because you, you know that it doesn't mean anything. Uh, you watch any news station for an hour or more, and you realize that what you're hearing is 90% repetition. But they keep you watching because you're afraid you might miss out on the 10% that's new and vitally important. But because the goal of worry porn is to get you to read or to watch right now, it's always parked in the immediate present. As Jenkins points out in his op-ed, Worry porn, among its many self-deceiving tricks, telescopes time in order to ignore its healing effect. 
So finally, worry porn has the effect of priming us for action while giving us nowhere to turn. So it raises our level of alarm, but gives us nothing to do, and it leaves us with a sense of helplessness and despair. Marilyn Robinson, uh, she calls this phenomenon cultural pessimism. And she explains the consequences of succumbing to it. She writes, cultural pessimism is always fashionable. And since we're human, there are always grounds for it. It has the negative consequence of depressing the level of aspiration, the sense of the possible. And from time to time, it has the extremely negative consequence of encouraging a kind of somber panic, a collective dreamlike state in which recourse to terrible remedies is inspired by delusions of mortal threat. If there's anything in the life of any culture or period that gives good grounds for alarm, it's the rise of cultural pessimism, whose major passion is bitter hostility toward many or most of the people within the very culture the pessimists always feel they are intent on rescuing. There's a lot in that. Um, But in essence, worry porn, it gives rise to polarization and then at its worst to extremism. And this kind of news consumption, it leaves us feeling anxious and powerless because we can't do anything about these things. And it distracts us from those important things nearby where we could act, in the next room, in the next house, the next street over. Why are we restless? We live in a society obsessed with information but desperate for wisdom where the ease of endlessly consuming the former has led to a tacit abandonment of the latter. So how can we as followers of Christ shift from being idle consumers of information to being sources of godly wisdom? Well, I'm going to be spectacularly brief in something that needs a lot more than this. But we begin by cultivating fear. It's not the fear generated by accounts of impending doom splashed across our newsfeed. It's the fear of the Lord. So Proverbs 1, 7, you know, it famously says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what Solomon means by this is that the only way we can begin to understand this strange world in which we live is by coming humbly to the feet of the God who made us. To fear the Lord is to recognize his sovereign power, to submit to his perfect knowledge, and to receive his enduring love. Kelly Capick writes, we don't need to fear precisely because we do fear God. He's present, he's powerful, he's wise, holy, and trustworthy. But we must anchor those beliefs, not in vague images of an abstract divine force, but most clearly in the person and work of Jesus. So in other words, when we process the information of the world in the context of the fear of the Lord, our hearts are calmed. And we're better able to assess and to respond. Worry porn, it doesn't have to send us spiraling into anxiety. The fear of the Lord, as Psalm 14 reminds us, is a fountain of life. So we have to remember that we're creatures. We're limited. We're dependent. Our lives are contingent on the God who made us and his breath which fills our lungs. We've been given the gift of curiosity and a mental capacity unlike any other creature. Our abilities are enormous, but we're not all-knowing. And our thirst for knowledge is all too often just a lust for godlike omniscience. 
Cultivate fear. That's the first thing we do in the search for wisdom. The second is we accept our ignorance. We accept our ignorance. Now, by saying this, I don't mean that we should stick our head in the sand and say, the world's just too complex to understand. What I mean is that we don't have to know everything, and we need not feel responsible for knowing everything. That's God's job. Instead of worrying that we're going to miss some essential piece of news, we can turn off our televisions. We simply cannot know every relevant piece of information. We need to recognize and accept this, and as a result, crawl to judgment rather than rushing to judgment. We also need to recognize that expertise, I think this is important, expertise is much harder to come by than we imagine. The mass consumption of information doesn't lead to expert knowledge necessarily. It doesn't even lead to decent partial knowledge. We've got to admit the vast expanse of our ongoing ignorance. So cultivate fear, accept your ignorance, and then thirdly, practice restraint. And what I mean by this is twofold. First, when it comes to matters of importance, matters of real importance, go ahead and focus your attention and go deep. And as you do, reflect on what you read or what you watch. Ask, why does it make you feel the way you do? Is it generating godly fear or ungodly fear? If so, why? Does what you're reading merely reinforce what you think you already know? If so, are there other things you should be considering? In your thirst for knowledge, are you seeking godlike omniscience or are you seeking faithful obedience? Secondly, practicing constraint also refers to how we treat those who differ from us. So we've all seen the shrillness and the shouting of the internet. And the truth is we, we don't have to participate in the, in the cacophony. We can speak simply, listen carefully, and form our opinions slowly. And we do all of these things by practicing humility. So James writes, first chapter of his letter, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And then two chapters later, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. I love that phrase, the meekness of wisdom. Wisdom isn't just good judgment. In the biblical tradition, wisdom is humility, obedience, faithfulness. So why are we so restless? I think in part because we've become obsessed with information in an age that's desperate for wisdom. As followers of Jesus, we need to cultivate fear, accept our ignorance, and practice constraint, all with a deep and abiding humility, because that's the way of wisdom. All right. Well, thanks for joining us again. We're back. My name is Josh Shatro. I'm the director for the Center for public Christianity, and I am the resident theologian at Holy Trinity Anglican Church. I'm here with two of my friends, and one of them is my co-host, uh, Micah Vandergrift. Micah, remind everybody who you are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Micah Vandergrift, um, uh, an alumni of the New City Fellows Program, and I uh, work in an area called user experience. So uh, data, technology, and research is all the stuff that I do. And we're really happy to be joined by our, our friend, Matt Benson. Go ahead, Matt. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. My name is Matt Benson. Uh, I'm also an alum of New City Fellows from the second class and help out with serving the alumni base that we have uh, growing year over year. And 
I work in a similar field to Micah. I work in data strategy as a management consultant, helping large clients manipulate lots of information to get actionable insights and create a data strategy. But happy to be here. Information. Both yeah. of you guys are in information, which is fitting for what we're talking about. Why are we so restless? We're obsessed with information in a world that's desperate for wisdom. Uh, just to for, for those who have uh, just listened or maybe catching up, John sort of lays out some some uh, big ideas for us and and why we're restless in, in facing information. Um, he um, introduces us to the the seductive power of knowledge, uh, the impact of information overload, and uh, a, a, a phrase that uh, got a lot of uh, giggles in the room: worry porn, and kind of gives us some uh, some tools to respond to that. Um, as I was uh, going, going back to the talk, Matt, um, I I saw in in and throughout, kind of across it, there that there are there's so much right data, science, politics, social media, news, and technology, all kind of jumbled into a half hour talk, and, and really pointed at the idea of information. Um, I'm wondering if you could just starting with you know that 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 big massive stuff, just give us your first impressions. What was your um, yeah, your your first takeaway of of, uh, of the talk. Yeah, there was a, thanks, Micah. That there was a lot there um, to really po- process through. I got a lot of information about information, <laughs> um, really digging through uh, through the course of the talk. I think one of the things that stood out to me was, um, I think, just walking through each of those three areas, and I'm like, when I start thinking and sitting in that amount of information and how it, we process it, it's almost like a sense of like. If I was to eat so much or if I was inundated with noise, but I'm also overwhelming myself with information at all times almost. And so if I stop at the first part of the talk, it's like pretty hopeless. And then as we change direction as like what's our responsibilities as believers, I think that brings back a hopefulness um, looking forward and looking to Christ, I think was the big thing to me rather than just sitting there and knowing of how much information is multiplied over the years. I think I've looked up a stat that got me curious to find some more information. In 2010, there were two zettabytes of data in the world, which is a zettabyte is equal to one billion terabytes. And now, so two terabytes 12 years ago, and now there's over 100. And mm-hmm. so just the the massive amount of information that is around us and available. I know we I see phones sitting on the table, but... Um, that's right there at our, at our whim. And so it can be very daunting. Yeah. And also um, for me, you know, I, I worked for a long time as a uh, librarian information scientist and um, the, that's daunting and also incredibly exciting. Right. So for, for me, I've, I've always approached information as a, um, as, as a good that, that God has given to us at, at the time that we live right now where we can know uh, in in some capacity, right? We can have some mm-hmm. form of knowledge of whatever we want, and that that can be used for good. So a lot of the circles that I've run in, or the professional work that I've done, is always advancing and fighting for the good of the spread and mm-hmm. the growth of of information and knowledge. So okay, I just said the two words I want to get to there, and I'm, I'll just spring this on you. Just a pure intellectual curiosity for me. How how would you define the difference between information and knowledge? I I, I think there's a, a tidbit of that buried in the talk here, but just off the top of your head, hit me. 
Yeah, so I think the thing that stands out to me is I go back to the work that I do with data strategy. And so we often differentiate between data and information. And so data sitting by itself, then with actionable insights, the right metadata, the right context applied to it, can become information. And so that can become actionable. But when I think of information versus knowledge, information is more, I think, siloed, standalone, where the knowledge brings some type of wisdom or a broader, what I would call, sorry to get really nerdy, but the metadata, the context around Mm -hmm. that information. So putting in the right context and having it uh, a fuller picture and kind of placing it in the right order. Yeah. You're speaking my language, man. That's exactly what what I would say also. So, um, Josh, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you first to look at this note that I wrote on my phone, (laughs) September 18th, 2020, and just read that out. The, the, The date is important. We live in a culture that idolizes information, but has no patience for knowledge and no desire for wisdom. So this is just just me making sure that people know that I had the idea before John wrote it down as the title of his talk. <laughs> but it, you know, it, um, it 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 precludes something that like that we're all swimming in now and and starting to recognize. And he he kind of opens the talk saying, you know, especially or opens the series saying, especially coming out of pandemic time and the the way our yeah. lives have shifted, um, how, what does this, the flood of information feel like to you or how are you responding to it, especially as the, you know, um, leading two, you know, two and a half classes of New City Fellows through a really difficult time? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, I would go back to my time teaching in university even mm-hmm. where I'm dealing with, I'm interacting with uh, university students who are uh, a Christian, Christian university and they are off on their own for the first time, undergrads. And, um, and so even at a Christian university, they're exposed to different Christian traditions, but you know, they're exploring lots of different things out, even, even outside of Christianity. And what I, what I realized in, in most of their cases, um, they would come to me or I'd interact with them and they would be often struggling because they had information, they had data, but they had they had they didn't have an ability to to bring that together. They didn't have a coherent narrative, or the coherent narrative that they were given um, growing up didn't seem less plausible than it once did. And so they were unsure about the broader narrative, the big the meta narrative we might call it. And and so so with that, it was just all this data, but not sure how to make sense of it, and then all these different people interpreting it different ways. And so I, I've seen in in many ways, you know, that's when you're 19 or 20. Um, that that was a challenge. That yeah, the internet. I'm I'm 40 now. The internet was up and going, but it's just a different ball game now. So um, so they're really dealing with some some even challenges to their faith, some challenges on how to see the world that for many people, I mean, they never even heard these issues. They never even, they, they didn't feel the fragility of their faith. <laughs> and, and so I'm, I'm particularly thinking about matters of faith, but obviously we saw this with, with um, and John brought it up in his talk, mask mandates and follow the science and all, you know, 
and and yet um, it's not that simple. You know, uh, it can, uh, you know, science does wonderful things, but science can often tell us what is, but not what should be. <laughs> and science doesn't give us value. Science doesn't. Um, we can take this data in, but it's not going to put it together. We need, let me introduce another term, we need actually well-functioning imaginations mm -hmm. to actually deal with this. Because if you think about rationality, if you think about rationality, the ability to, to think of how, do you, how might this all work together, if you just take fragmented data, you, you need the ability to put it together. And that's what imaginations do. Well, maybe it fits together like this. Maybe it, this, this is called abductive logic, right? Or inference to the best conclusion. So you're putting together a bunch of facts and how do you make sense of this? And so if you don't have people with good imaginations who can think of how these things might fit coherently and everyone is, this is a, just one more, one more point here. Um, Christian Smith, uh, the, the, um, the um the sociolo sociologist at University of Notre Dame he talks about how we have now pervasive interpretive pluralism <laughs> right and and he was saying this years ago but what his point was is now anyone can anyone can have this kind of theory it's like and he was particularly thinking about the biblical text but he's saying you know, if you want to if you want to find a conclusion, an exegetical conclusion, you can go find a PhD, you can go find a blogger, you can go find someone with credentials to support your your position and fill in the data. And I think what I've seen, what we've all seen in the last few years is all this information, you can go cherry pick that data. And, and, and you're really doing, you know, post hoc reasoning, mm. <laughs> you have your conclusions. And then finding the data to fit that and like like the best undergrad paper <laughs> right <laughs> and and so here's the so I, I think one of the things we're seeing is real challenges not only for public conversations and moving things forward and but um so that you have people from different tribes how do we actually reason with one another because well okay we've got all this data but we don't actually have a common narrative or or, or, or maybe the bigger issue here, I'll, I'll throw this on the table, is we don't have intellectual virtues. Hmm. And so, so because we're not, uh, and what I mean is like humility, patience, um, just, the, just the name too. If you, if you throw in like Christian doctrines here that we're sinners, <laughs> that as, as John was making the point that we're dependent, that there, there's a lot... Not only we could say from maybe kind of a natural reasoning, but from particular Christian doctrines that should make us hit the pause button and say, hang on, um, maybe we're not the type of people to reach the right conclusions. We have a lot of data, but, but we don't have enough intellectual virtues or even moral virtues to have these conversations well and, and move in one healthy direction as a society yeah it, it sounds like you're, you're you're bringing us back to, to matters of the heart right <laughs> yeah 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 but 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 how do we cultivate i think if if the call and john's call for us was a kind of um you know okay so we've 
We can all get data. So what's the problem? Why are we restless? Well, we don't have wisdom. How, how do we get wisdom? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do we get wisdom? Yeah. And, and I think when we and he answers that some, but we can answer it. And I think the Bible is so incredibly nuanced here. Where on one hand, the Bible can talk about wisdom sometimes, like in Ecclesiastes and in other proverbs, which is almost like, um, it's almost like a wise businessman or you know, these are just like healthy practices and you can observe nature and actually see them there. But then there's wisdom that comes from fear of God, mm-hmm. fear of the Lord. Um, and I think they work together, right? And so it doesn't mean that if somebody's not a Christian, they don't, they can't have kind of a secular type of wisdom that's good. It's not the best, <laughs> but there's something that even as Christians, we can say, hey, we, we actually share some common ground here. Mm-hmm. And we can have discussions. Um, and so then it becomes, how do we cultivate wisdom? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's the call that John's leading us to. Yep. And, um, and th- that, that's a, a question that I wrote down that I wanted to, to ask Matt. Um, since a lot of the, um, the, the talk, remember I laid out, there's, there's a big landscape that, that Father right. John painted for us. Most of how he was talking through this, uh, through this talk was pointed at the internet. Mm-hmm. Right, all the, the sorts of things that he mentioned was was really about the internet. There's lots of there are still other ways that people gather information and cultivate wisdom and, and knowledge. Books, books. Yes, there are still there books are, that you b- pick up and read, and, yeah. and films, and theater, and poetry, and you know, <laughs> well, art, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the question for you, Matt, is: um, Have you in your 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 daily life, your your lived experience, ha- have you found places where you can cu- where you cultivate wisdom? In, in online spaces, are there things that you go to that you enjoy that are, that inspire you? or like, wh- Where is the good in the internet? That's what I want to keep asking. <laughs> I go back a little bit, Micah, to what you were saying. And I feel like I painted like a doom and gloom version <laughs> of the internet when we started off of it is so exciting because there is a wealth out there. And I think, I've, I mean, John really hit at some of my, I feel like he was looking into my life on some of the stuff, I think he talked about like a link to a link to a link to um, something. I was like, oh, I've been down that Wikipedia wormhole many yeah. times. And a lot of the data that's out there, like I find joy and it's, I think one or kind of three areas that come to my mind is, I think cultivating a, like a lens of wisdom or like that lens that's going to allow me to see things more from Christ's perspective. If I'm spending time in the word and just like, in prayer in the morning, I, I can see I'm encountering the same events in the course of the day. Mm-hmm. And like, if it's on the internet or just in, in real life off the screen, <laughs> like I can see that, that lens looks different. And I, if not, I can see the jagged, um, flaw in my lens, then mm-hmm. it acts as a prism to like kind of transform what I'm seeing, uh, to look totally different. And then I think in community, whether it's online or in real life, I think kind of finding some people that are like-minded, I think that's one of the things I loved about doing New City Fellows over the course of the year, kind of going through, like we could all read individually uh, this large amount of curriculum, but going through life together and talking about and kind of cultivate, and we weren't all in agreement across across the way all the time, but just I think in community that really helps. And then I think online, if I had that lens, I. I can see it a number of different places. I mean, I think 
Wikipedia probably stands out to me. Just like there's a wealth of things that you can continue to mm-hmm. to kind of go through, and just as you were, as you guys were saying, like the wealth of information. Like if you go back, what is it, 600 years ago before the printing press, and or even a few hundred years ago, and people didn't have like a book was a mighty fine thing to have, and then yeah, you yeah. you look like you have access. Now we have access to all this wealth of information. Just think, taking a step back and thinking through those things is kind of Bring, brings me some joy and really enjoy that. Yep. Micah, this is your, <laughs> this is kind of, this is kind of your topic here, right? <laughs> this is one, this is so center, central to what you do on a day in and day out, thinking about information, thinking about, um, uh, and, and, and with that, the online world. So I want to, I, I want to make sure you're giving us Everything you got <laughs> in this episode here, because uh, you're you're the kind of master at asking us questions here. But I know you've got some some things, so I'm just wanting to to put you up now to to speak speak into this. Yeah. Um, so the um, at the at the end of the New City Fellows program, I was really struggling to understand how, how to you know it's a talking about faith and work. How do we connect these things? Yeah. I was really struggling to figure that out for, for myself. Uh, I had a million ideas, and none of them seemed like they were going to work. And then something finally came together um, when I, I found this this phrase. Um, I forget where I where I found it, but someone was uh, talking online. Of course, is where I found mm-hmm. it. But someone was talking about the the um, the infodemic that we've we've come. You know, we've we've faced a pandemic, but there's also uh, an ongoing infodemic, and and that. Um, that caused a stir in me that that made me think what what's possible if there if there's an infodemic out there and 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 what i see in 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 the world in the world of information online spaces is good and i see um tr- truth even h- hidden in pockets of out there on online yeah. what what could i do what what's the thing that um that i could bring to connect my work to to that that challenge that question mm-hmm. um I keep coming back to, and I'll, I'll, I'm I'm going to throw it out. I'm going to say it and then turn it right back to you. But the question that I'm still asking that my my project, I think, is in my cultural renewal project, is getting at, is what does it look like to be faithfully present in online spaces? We, the 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 church has sort of understood itself, I think, um, in in physical space and environments and yeah. cities in um, in even national politics and in culture, but some of the ideas that I was uh, picking at in my project were, what if we approach the internet itself as an institution? And so um, uh, how, how do we, uh, if, you know, if we were really moving forward into the age of, beyond the age of information, into the age of virtual reality and artificial intelligence and all this stuff that mm-hmm. sci-fi has told us about for 100 years, how do we be faithfully present in an environment like that? How do we be faithful present, faithfully present as Christians on the internet? Well, one of the things just to flag for everyone is Micah is using language there that I like. Uh, it's by it's coined by a sociologist at University of Virginia by the name Christian, uh, a Christian sociologist um, by the name of James Davison Hunter. He wrote an important book uh, over ten years ago now called. Uh, how to change the world, and uh, 
it was an important book because at the end of the day, he's calling for Christians um, to have a certain posture towards culture, recognizing the complexity and our our actual inability to kind of control culture and 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 kind of challenges Christians about what their first of all what their kind of primarily primary purpose is as image bearers, mm-hmm. which is to glorify God. And then he would say, and he uses this term as faithful, faith to be faithfully present in all spheres. And um which means you're not trying to simply coerce or manipulate, but recognizing we all have different callings. And so we enter places and we say, we're going to be distinct because we're Christians, but it's going to be distinctiveness with humility because we're people of the cross. And, and with that humility means that we can um, find places where we can serve the common good. And his key text here is, is Jeremiah 29, when uh, the people of God are in exile, and then and yet God calls them to actually serve even the common good of this idolatrous nation. And then, of course, that exile language is brought into the New Testament. And again, we're called to love our neighbors and even our enemies in the New Testament. So, so all that frames, uh, Mike is asking a question. <laughs> That's just the backdrop of, okay, well, what does that look like on the internet? Mm-hmm. And um, I think it means different things for different people. Uh, and I can, uh, you know, so for me, I primarily use um, the internet to get information when I get information to communicate through people I know, emails, and then occasionally to post things on social media. Hey, well, look what the center's doing. Hey, Please buy my books. You know things like this. It's billboard. No problem with that. We can. It's a bill. It's a free billboard. We can use that. But for me, faithfully presence means I don't spend my time arguing with strangers. Mm-hmm. I don't spend my time really trying to persuade people. Now I have friends who do. I have you know my good friend who's who we've hosted for events. Karen Pryor. She has a and and I'm constantly saying, Are you sure this is if, if this is what, <laughs> what you want to do, we we have these conversations about. We don't. I don't know if we've used that language, Micah. But what does faithful presence look like on the internet? We we have this, and I think I have to recognize. Um, I've recognized in these conversations we have different callings, uh, and so um, so you know I, I'm sure we could we could say you know hey, look at this person's way they're using the internet or using social media platforms and and the good they're doing with that. With I have friends who have YouTube channels. I have friends, you know, all of these are ways to get information out. And there's nothing inherently wrong. I I would actually say they're good. Mm. Right? I mean, I, I, they're good things. But you know, just like so many good things, they're they're so easily twisted. Yeah, and and one um, of the one of the um, tools that that Father John gives us in the, in the talk is how do we practice constraint um, in in our approach in our posture toward information. Yeah. So for for me, um, I've done this two years in a row now, and it never goes well. But my my Lenten practice is to be media free. 
which means news, movies, which I love and hate giving up, podcasts, which I love and hate giving up, and so and the only media that I that I consume are books, which Josh loves, and music, which uh, is the thing that that gives me life. Um, so, so my real concern here, and one of my concerns is that it gives us the illusion that we can think for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I'm here, I'm riffing off the book, Alan Jacobs, How to Think. Mm-hmm. And in the book, he says, actually, none of us think for ourselves. And I think, and I want to explain that for a second, but, but it used to be that we kind of recognize, I think, more so, we'd, we'd have to enter into communities. You actually had to go to universities physically, <laughs> you know? And I, I think there can be places for online education. I'm, I'm not saying that, but but you you were forced to go physically if you were going to go get an education you 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 had to be there and you received this instruction and then you were in a class and and um and now we hear things like do your research mm-hmm. well we know right when when we're talking to just people in in casual conversation around that oftentimes what that means it means go do a few google searches mm-hmm. And then, and, and so that, and I've done my research and I'm thinking for myself, but Alan Jacobs is saying, first of all, listen, you, you can, even there you're, you're doing it in community in one sense, right? Cause you're, you're, you're pulling from one particular person or people from the internet, but so, so we're always, we're always actually thinking in community. The issue is what communities are we thinking? What kind of community are we thinking in? And I would suggest that one of the challenges with the internet is we're, it's much easier to put yourself in a silo. It's much more easy to, 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 to be unfair and caricature people in that, in that world than it is, like, I don't know, you show up in your neighborhood <laughs> Or you show up at a church, or you show up in a park, and you talk to people. Um, and so, my concern is, among other things, is we don't, we can't think well, and the internet's actually killing how we think. Our attention spans. So I, so again, internet's good. How are we using it? Um, and I, and I think that that. So, so anyway, those are those are some of my concerns, Matt. Well, I think here. yeah, I think back to your question, Micah. Something that I think becomes very prevalent in thinking through that constraint aspect, and as believers, if we're image bearers, like that, those people on the internet, and we got a pizza here in front of us, garlic sauce one two three username. <laughs> that's our that's our neighbor at some level, and it's very easy for us to make someone else that we encounter just a flat character, and that they're not also. Um, a child of Christ as well. And Mm -hmm. so I think just taking a step back and practicing some of that constraint, wow, it's very easy when I go and chase information and doing a quick Google search and then I see somebody that I don't agree with, I can fire off a really quick note, but that that still is my neighbor. Mm -hmm. It's not physically we're sitting across the table from each other, but it's my neighbor connected through some fiber optic cables. Yeah, yeah. So putting some humanity back into the... Uh, information environment. Yeah. Right. Um, I wanted to. Uh, I asked you, Matt, at the at the top. What are some places that you go for uh, to you know inspiration, or what, what are the good corners of the internet? Mm-hmm. I found one recently that I wanted to call out as a resource. There's a um, uh, 
uh, design agency. I don't, I don't really know what they are called whiteboard, um, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, but they produced, it's a, it's a web only publication called grayscale, um, that talks about the exact issues that we're talking about here. And it sort of, uh, explores, uh, a variety of, um, ways of uh, their subtitle here is surfacing the hidden tensions that are already alive online. Uh, and and pulling apart like the first one that they do is the um, we're we're treated by and by modern information especially as consumers, but as, as Christians or as, as humans uh, in an online space, um, the 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 opposite of that is cr creator, right? So we're not just consumers; we should be creating. And in creation, we participate in you know in in good godly life. Uh, so I, I just can't recommend that um, that resource enough. I think it's really uh, amazing. I would want to add, you know, as we're as we're ending this, I would want to add that, although we, and especially I've been critical or expressed concern, um, I also want to recognize, you know, the internet's still fairly new, right? That's right. I mean, and so we're still learning. Okay, what is it doing? You know, what is it doing to kids when they've grown up with the internet with with cell phones, with all these things. And I just want to say, like, we're, we're learning. And, you know, it's, I think it's going to be kind of like, you know, now we think, I can't believe that they used to let those kids ride around without seatbelts. <laughs> like, yeah. What were they thinking? And I think, yeah. you know, we're still learning. And we need, we need to show some humility and, rec and just show, like, hey, there's a lot that we don't know, and maybe we're doing some things here with practices in our home, with how we're using this that are wrong, and is actually leading to our restlessness. Mm -hmm. And I, I would just say the kind of the negativity or, or the uh, the kind of constructive criticism here isn't. We don't mean it to be internet's bad or information's bad. Information's great, right? Mm -hmm. But what we're trying to say is how. How do we deal with this? How do we deal with this? It's like, you know, you give your kids the car keys for the first time. And, you know, that's a good thing. But <laughs> they better be ready. Mm -hmm. And I think all of a sudden we got thrown the car keys of a ton of information. And all the while we, you know, maybe we hadn't been cultivating the type of virtues that are needed. So we're called as image bearers. To, to care for this world, to discover information's good. But if we're not the right type of people, if we're not the right type of image bearers, if we're not the right type of humans who know God, who love God, who love others, and who have these kind of intellectual moral virtues, well, things can go really bad, right? That's, that's where Genesis heads, right? Mm -hmm. Like this new technology, let's build a towel. Uh, a towel. Sorry, <laughs> we'll try to get, let's try that again. A tower, right? And all of a sudden things go really bad with idolatry. And, and as Paul says in Romans 1, you know, we suppress this knowledge that we have because of our sinfulness. So it really does matter. Like we can't disconnect morality and virtue from information and 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 how we make things and the culture around us, those things are going to get tied together. And as Christians, we have this kind of holistic anthropology. And I, I, I to, to kind of end on an encouraging note, I mean, 
I work with people in their 20s and 30s week in, week out, and some of the sharpest people in Raleigh, and and they get this. They're getting this. They're changing their practices. They're changing their habits. They're saying, hey, this isn't working. And But they're owning the fact that, hey, this the reason this is that I'm saying it's not working is because I I'm feeling the anxiety. I'm I, I know this isn't working, and I'm hungry hungry for wisdom. So they're owning that, and then they're pursuing a different way to attend to the world, to 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 get information, and then to process it in a healthy community. So I see signs that we're learning. So I'm I'm I'm. I'm not optimistic. I am hopeful. <laughs> no. And I have some I have little glimmers of optimism uh on certain days when I hang I hang around people like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's an exciting time and it's uncharted territory for a lot of stuff as we navigate much more information and data and how do we process it with wisdom? How do we love our neighbors accordingly? And it's got a potential to really connect us and to misquote Walt Whitman, but to actually quote uh Ted Lasso, be curious but not judgmental, I feel like is a good way to go about things and kind of cultivate and love our neighbors well. If you're a local to the Triangle area of North Carolina in your mid-20s to 40s and interested in the discussions like the one you've been listening to, we hope you'll consider applying for New City Fellows, the discipleship program of the Center for Public Christianity. You can find out more by going to the Center for Public Christianity's website.